Our scripture text can be found in Revelation 1. And I do not have that written down what page number that is for your Bibles. Thirteen ten? Okay. <laughs> Before we come to God's word, let me lead us in a prayer of illumination. Jesus, you are the light to the world, and by your spirit you give us light, light to see what you have revealed in yourself, in your word. Lord, you give us hearts and ears which can hear and follow and obey. Lord, as we approach your word to us this morning, we pray your spirit's softening and opening. We pray by the blood of Christ. Amen. Revelation 1, 1 through 20. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his, to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me of a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia 
and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs, the hairs of his head, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God. Today we begin the first of a six-sermon series in Revelation. And we won't cover the entirety of Revelation because no young pastor is foolish enough to try and take on the later chapters. I'm just teasing. But uh, we'll focus mostly on chapters 2 and 3 because I had the privilege and the opportunity to actually go to the sites where these churches were. I had the privilege and the opportunity to study under Professor Wyma, who actually wrote and published a book on this, and whom, whose resources I will reference, but also will preach on these chapters because, um, because there's something beautiful which we see in chapters 2 and 3. We see an intimacy between Christ and his church. Christ and his church specifically, specific churches in specific cities at a specific time, but also to the greater church. Uh, Commentators have noticed seven is a number of completeness. And in many ways, Jesus is doing two things there, speaking to those specific churches, but to all the churches. And All the churches, in the midst of their struggles, their sins, their tribulations, he speaks and gives promise and hope. But before we get into those chapters, we have to work through chapter 1, which is our text this morning. And this morning I want to explore, to examine this chapter through three lenses. The first is a lens which notices the exaltation of Jesus in this chapter. The second, a lens which examines the accomplishments of Jesus 
in this chapter. And then the third, why it matters to us and how we might apply it. The exaltation of Jesus. The very first verse begins actually lifting up and exalting Jesus. Do you see it? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Actually, this chapter starts out with just three words. The English adds these words as the translation needs. But the three words are actually just apokuleophosis, Christus, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. I haven't pronounced Greek in a long time. <laughs> the three words are revelation, Jesus Christ. And in this, I think John is pointing to something, pointing to not only that Jesus will reveal through words, but that Jesus himself is a revelation, that he's God's revelation. In one sentence, he is the truth and the way and the life, as he claims. And you might be asking, what does that have to do with exaltation? But what it means from the very start is that he is or knows something that we don't. That he is greater and we are lesser. It means he has to reveal to us and that we must receive. Growing up, I was uh, part of a church and they had a really large youth room. It's why I traveled to that church. And their youth room was probably three and maybe even four times the size of this sanctuary. And the, the youth room was interesting. It had all different levels. It had chairs here and there and had games and toys for youth and middle school. And the weird part about it is they designed it, this whole room, and there was just one light switch at the very door that exited and so the prank that the middle schoolers that I would partake in is when people are on the other side of the room, you just hit the light, and then they'd be in absolute darkness. And it was like a maze trying to get back. With a vague awareness of where things were, you'd kind of work your way towards the door, towards light. And the person at the switch just had absolute power over you, hiding in the, in the dark, and then you just wait until they got close, and then you flip it back on. But God's word and God's revelation isn't quite like that. In fact, in that example where we have a prior knowledge and a prior awareness of the things that are, that's not how we see the revelation of Christ. None of us would have come up with God's gospel or God's revelation of himself to us through, through Jesus Christ, through the cross, and through the resurrection. In our blindness, the best we can do is create idols and man-made rules, which falls so short of God's call for perfection. You know, I was thinking this week, uh, there's a book called 12 Rules for Life. It was recently published, and, and 
it just shows that we are seeking for rules of life. And yet, even following that book perfectly doesn't lead to eternal life. This week I uh, spoke with someone and uh, he shared a lot about himself, actually. Um, it's a neighbor of this church. And he asked what I believed or what this church believed. And I shared just briefly, but then I let him talk and he went on for quite a while. It's really cool to, to hear and to, to learn, but it was also quite sad. He shared a lot about what he believed and also even what his brother believed. And he came from a Christian background, but he had walked away and was figuring out what he believed. I say he was figuring it out, but realistically, he was creating what he believed, creating his God, his understanding of God, his vision of God. And I fear that's what many of us do, and even those in the church and we do that by not paying attention to God's word, not taking heed to ourselves and our practices or our doctrines. We, uh, we neglect these things. And, and we actually end up creating a, a little Jesus. Instead of going to him and seeing how he reveals who he is, we imagine this version. And by doing that, we imagine a lesser God. The creation can never be greater than its creator. And so if we imagine how God is, if we think or believe we'll serve a God that is our own creation, he'll look a lot like us. And yet the very core tenet of the Christian faith is that a God that is greater than us, who created us, has to reveal himself to us. We are lesser. And Jesus is the revelation of the fullness of God. And his word is the revelation of who he is to us and what he calls us to. And you can see this then in verse 3. Because those whom he's revealed to and who he speaks to are blessed. Those who read his words, the words of his prophecy. And blessed are those who hear of him and see him. And blessed are those who keep what is given them. Blessed are those who receive. Blessed even in the time of trial and in the midst of sin and persecution and temptation, as many of the churches which we'll see in Revelation were. John writes, even in this letter, he says, partner in the tribulation and the trial. Jesus is exalted in the revelation of himself and in the words to us. And he exalts himself. In verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In verse 17, Jesus will say, I'm the first and the last. In verse 5, he is the ruler of the kings of earth. And in Verse In chapter 22, he will repeat again, I am the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus has no qualms lifting himself up. 
pointing to himself as the great pinnacle by which we understand both ourselves and all creation. First and the last, all these things are under him. And to understand them properly, we must see them through him. I actually love these titles and am struck. In the chapters ahead, we'll see these titles come back as Jesus speaks to particular churches and their needs. But I, uh, I've always loved the titles and in stories when people have like names and great titles. I've always liked how uh, history will capture a person who captures a spirit or a movement of an age. So I think of like Char- um, Winston Churchill, who was called the British Bulldog because he was a fighter and he and captured the British fighting spirit in World War II. Or Honest Abe, who, uh, who captured honesty, which we expect of our leaders and those who guide us. I uh, love the nickname of Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers because he was uh, gifted in that. Titles are meant to lift up aspects and representations of those who, who embody them, who capture them. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letter of the alphabet. The Lord Jesus has no hesitancy to exalt him, say, himself saying that everything from first to last is under my name, is captured by my authority, all creation, all time and space belong to the Almighty. Not only is Jesus lifted up by the names he recognizes in himself, John exalts Jesus and exalts him in verses 12 through 16. I won't go too deep into them, into the aspects, but I I want to read them. And I want you to look at this description, this portrayal of Jesus in contrast to the way so often Jesus is portrayed. So often we get, and I think, well, giving the most grace possible, we get a portrayal of Jesus as meek and mild, but it usually strays into what I would call a a portrayal which is weak and timid or relatable. Look at how John describes what he sees. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shone like the sun in full strength. The very appearance, like a son of man, relates him to us, and yet every other one of these aspects is is greater. In fact, the very presence of this man, this man like a son of man, has a dying effect on John as he falls down as though one dead. How often do we think of Jesus in such greatness? 
with such authority and presence, with such effect over our lives, if he were to stand before us. I don't know if you've ever stood in the presence of someone great. I'm sure you have. Or someone whom you perceived as great. I've had two people who I can immediately think of and come to mind. One was my professor, my Greek professor, Wyma. He has an effect over me, which in a much smaller sense is like what John has. I revere him in some ways. And if I ever failed or scored less on my Greek test, which I most definitely did, I would feel shame or disappointed that I had let down Wyma. I also had a pastor in Virginia who I credit as one of the main reasons why I chose to pursue the ministry, to follow a call into the ministry. His very presence, his insight, his guidance, I would trust over my own understanding. Such is the effect of great men and women whom we recognize for their greatness. But the Western church has created or related a Jesus that I think is less than that. I can tell you how one way I have experienced this. In seminary, you spend a lot of time in the Bible and you spend a lot of time with Christians. And it's easy to become complacent or even flippant. And I remember making a joke and a joke that had to do a little bit with the cross. But I made it in the presence of someone who wasn't from America, wasn't from my seminary. He was from a different one. And he was Japanese, which is a, a culture which has a huge value of respect and reverence, something our culture lacks. And I remember him calling me out saying, how can you make a joke like that? It embarrassed me. When I read this text, I couldn't help but think how I had nothing of that thought of the Christ of Jesus who rules all the kings of the earth, and especially me, a sinner saved by him. How flippant or light or neglectful I was. In fact, I think most of us in the church or the Western church, we are so, so caught up by a vision that isn't like this. We're caught up uh, with a vision of a, of a buddy Jesus, a relatable Jesus. I saw an ad campaign even for the Super Bowl pushing a relatable Jesus, which Jesus is relatable, but he's also so much more. In fact, I think we have often a view of our created Jesus who is a good teacher, a good moral example, or a complete abstraction. Not a 
human, fully human and fully divine Christ. That's what makes 12 through 16 so remarkable. John is describing what he is seeing, what is being revealed to him, but what is being revealed to him is connected directly to his senses. Do you see that? Sight, hearing, presence or feeling. In fact, it's his senses who are struggling to keep up with the Christ who is before him. Look at the description. He's trying to find ways of describing Jesus, but the words aren't great enough. The description is greater than what he can, can grab. It's as if, and we've all had these experiences, sunsets or love or whatever it might be. I'm sure you've felt that moment that time where you're trying to capture, but words can't. That's what John is seeing. In fact, his senses can't capture. They ultimately just are likenesses, lesser things than the actual thing. This is the revelation, the revelation of Jesus revelation of our great and resurrected ruler of our Savior. And that should be a comfort to us who follow him. As I talked with this neighbor who uh, was creating his God, he told me about his brother who's a nihilist who doesn't believe that there is a God or any meaning. And he he said he tried to take that view for three weeks, but he ended up being so depressed for those three weeks that he'd rather just believe that there is a God out there. He just doesn't know who it is. And I listened to him for a while, but then I planted this. I, I gave this one correction, this correction which is is lost to anyone who denies or creates their God. I said those are beliefs, those are values, those are worldviews which are privileged. They only stand up to those who live comfortable lives, who aren't struggling or aren't being persecuted or tried aren't dying. Those who, who live in first worlds without problems. But once problems happen, once your world is shattered, suddenly in your suffering, you seek for meaning. Suddenly in the loss of everything. You don't want a God whom you created or a God who is like you. You want a God who is absolutely other, who is greater than you, who is powerful compared to your powerlessness. Then you want a God who will protect you, who will represent you and save you. 
to the church of Revelation or the churches of Revelation. Many of them are suffering. And so John writes this letter reminding them that though their God tarries, though he waits, and though they suffer and struggle with sins and struggle against wolves within and without, though he waits in his greater wisdom, he is still in control. He is still more powerful than what they're facing. And he sees it all with eyes which refine, eyes of fire which see and cast light into everything. This is the greatness of the Jesus exalted in chapter 1. In the next lens, the accomplishments of Jesus. These accomplishments also exalt Jesus, but they do so in a way that are attached to us. Here's what I mean. Some things are glorious on their own, just like the description of Christ in verses 12 through 16. But verse 17 and the effect which it has on John leads to exalt him higher, leads through contrast to make the point more poignant. Some things are glorious on their own, but sometimes the perception of their glory or their greatness or their goodness is shown in contrast to the opposite. And I think we see this in two sections in our chapter here today. Verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, of, a kingdom priest to his God and Father. And then in verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In the first section, we see the contrast of freedom and sins. Freed us from our sins by his blood. In this exaltation, in this accomplishment, we see Christ not only being a good man, but being, well, here's what I mean. Christ Jesus would be glorious and would be exalted simply had he took on flesh and lived a sinless life. Genesis writes how God created man and woman in his image and it was good. But God is more than just a God of goodness. Our God is more than just a God of goodness. He is a God of goodness, which is greater than evil through the Lord Jesus. He's a God, he's a Lord of love, and a love which frees, not forgetting sin, but by fulfilling the law and redeeming. That makes the revelation of Jesus not only good news, but grave news. Serious news. And it also confronts us by contrast. I'm afraid that the gospel of Jesus and of his greatness holds in it 
an offense, and Scripture tells us of this. The offense that if he is to be a savior, then that we need saving. Now, we aren't to look, as the Heidelberg Catechism reminded us this morning, to ourselves or within ourselves. And if he is greater, then by contrast, we must also be lesser. That's a reality. If we need freeing or are freed, it means that at one point we were slaves. And to be freed and to be to receive these things is to recognize, to humble ourselves and acknowledge. And that is hard for the proud heart, right? I think the accomplishment of Christ is powerfully seen in the verse eight in verse 18 where he says I am the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore we live in a world which is uncomfortable with the term sin and denies it or doesn't recognize it doesn't want to believe there is such a thing and even in the he gets us campaign I, I watched through their videos their evangelism doesn't mention sin and I understand it's, it's humbling and humiliating to say, to admit sin in our lives, to admit that we are a sinner. And so the world often denies that sin is present and happening. And yet, this second accomplishment points to death, which is the wages of sin. And the world, though it tries to avoid death, cannot deny it. There's two certainties in this life, as the old joke goes. It's that there'll be taxes and that there'll be death. And yet Christ here, in our text this morning, says, the living one, I died and behold, I am alive. And not just alive right now, but forever more. Who among us can say such a thing? Truth is, each of us is in one way already dying. That a date is set and we approach it daily. The Heidelberg Catechism says that my only comfort in life and death is not that I, that I am not my own, but belong belong to the man, the Lord, the God who has conquered and holds death and hell as something so trivial as keys. The God who lives and lives forevermore. I find it kind of ironic, too, that he holds such a power over death that his presence before John makes him fall down like one dead. So conquered is it in Christ. And that may be a peace to us, but as verse 7 reminds us, He is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see Him. 
even those who pierced him. Eternal life was something taught to generations before mine, but has been taught less. And so we as, at least in the church, often don't see our lives with a lens of eternal life, which Christ has achieved for you and I. The third final lens, why all this matters, why the revelation of these things, of Christ Jesus and his word to us, matters and how do we apply them? Well, the first, I think, is that we should take comfort in the nearness and the greatness of Christ, that he is in the midst of the churches as John sees, that his power and greatness is at hand. It's not uncommon, even for me as a pastor, you know, especially as me as a pastor, for I am just as human as you. We are all relatable to each other. To, to find myself praying in the midst of a week, God, where are you? Jesus, where are you? I don't see you in the midst of this right now. Where are you? And in a sense, that's a human response for we don't see clearly. But that's where this revelation from John or from Jesus, of Jesus, to his servants should give us comfort for he is in the midst of his churches. And in the weeks to come, when we look at these specific churches who also represent the greater church, every time Jesus speaks to them intimately, connectively, specifically, he will say, I know, I know deeply. I know your works, the good and the bad. I know your trials. I know your complacency. I know your zeal. The second application is it is out of this greatness and intimacy and knowledge that Jesus does speak and does speak words which rebuke, correct, and encourage. And we should expect that as Christians, as those following Christ, following his living word in Jesus and in the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed out and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And the Bible was not written for a church 2,000 years ago or 1,900 years ago. It was written to a church today. God's word transcends all ages, just as Jesus Christ does too. And so in the weeks to come, we should expect the Spirit to convict us, to correct us, to speak to us. Some of us will find ourselves to be more like the church in Ephesus, or Laodicea, or Sardis, or Pergamum. In fact, many of us will find different stages of our lives to be like these different churches. Finally, the application of peace, of comfort, which is found in verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, of pre a kingdom priest to his God and Father. 
What I want us to see is the actions done by Christ right now to you and I. Because as the, the words which will follow this week will be ones which do call the church to, to new actions or to corrections or to, to rebuking, or Christ will rebuke them. What's powerful about these lines, this, these verbs right here is has freed and made priests to his God. They're both established and happening. It takes only faith to become a Christian. But that faith will lead to change, to shaping, to correction, to training. Signing up to join the team is, is it takes nothing. It just takes faith. But then training begins towards perfection. And the words here are meant to shape us, to show us that the revelation of Christ has done this, but is also doing this, doing work in us. That the words are meant to shape us, to encourage us, to correct us or to rebuke us, and to train us. Train us to be what has already been achieved by him, to be a kingdom, to be priests, active, worshiping and participating, to his glory and to our joy and, and blessedness, to our blessing, one of life and joy and hope and peace. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, this morning we come to you asking that we might be given the Spirit and that you, by your Spirit and by your Son, reveal to us the fullness of the height and the breadth and the depth, the fullness of Christ Jesus resurrected and ruling at the right hand of God the Father, ruling in heaven. Lord, reveal to us his faithful love to us. And Lord, we ask that we might see and have ears to hear the words which you will speak to us through your word, not only today, but through your church and in the weeks to come. And Lord, we ask that you might manifest your word in us as a kingdom as your kingdom, and as priests to your Father. Lord, that we might be blessed by who you are, but also blessed by what you call us to and are making us and have made us into. Lord, that we might walk and keep your word and your law over our lives and as the light guiding our lives. And Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name, by his intermediating, and by his living, resurrected, and ruling power. In Jesus' name, amen.